Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the north. To the citizens of the world, welcome to Forum Borealis. Folks, this is in many ways our most important program hitherto. If you are sick, even with cancer, or knows someone who are, and who are open to exploring other possibilities than poison and radiation, please share this show with them. Today's guest is one of those whose credentials and CV just can't be covered by my brief introduction. So when we have his info up at the guest presentation page at our website, you can learn all the details there. The chap in question is John Apsley, not just MD, but MDE, which means he is an eclectic physician, trained in all areas of medicine with emphasis on nutritional medicine, naturopathy, and applied phytopharmacology, herbal therapeutics, and psychoneurosomatics, with subspecialties in homeopathic medicine and meridian therapy. He is also a Doctor of Chiropractic and a Bachelor of Science in Nutrition. He holds board certifications in acupuncture and meridian therapy, spinal disability evaluator and insurance claims reviewer. He is also a qualified instructor of electrodermal scanning as well as dark field microscopy. He also practices naturopathy and eclectic medicine utilizing applied collodial therapeutics and specializes in eclectic oncology. To learn his full education, you will have to look it up at our or his site as it's just too extensive. Dr. Apsley has been a health researcher for over 30 years and has specialized in rehabilitation and reversal of chronic degenerative illnesses through accelerated tissue repair and cellular regeneration. He has uncovered that the emergence of chronic degenerative diseases and premature aging is due to the decay over generations of the human constitution. He has documented that this decay occurs due to lack of vital minerals in our soils and poor lifestyle choices. Building upon careful studies from exemplary cases in nature, he has developed a four-pillar approach to regenerative medicine involving cutting-edge detoxification, maximal replenishment of body oxygen stores, filling the stomach with delicious superfoods and calming mind-body techniques within the clinical setting. He has published many books, studies and articles, and you will of course find his complete bibliography at our website. And his bestseller is entitled The Regeneration Effect. Dr. Apsley has recently completed a comprehensive four-year retrospective study of sodium, bicarbonate's role, that's baking soda, in priming tissues to establish the regeneration effect at the cell and subcell levels. He is a frequent lecturer and is often interviewed in radio. His professional experience led him into serving as president of a leading biotech company that developed for commercial use the world's first nanotechnology capable of rendering medicinal metals into angstrom-sized particles. He has served as the executive director of the Immunogenic Research Foundation, 
been president of Natural Immunogenics Corporation, director of research and patient services at Physical Medicine Services, and was founder of Biome Nutraceutical Research Corporation, partner and director of Genesis Center for Holistic Care and Chiropractic Sciences, and owner and medical director of Northwest Chiropractic Clinic. Dr. Apsley was also chief editor and publisher for IMREF Publications. He is founder and organizer of a not-for-profit physicians organization called International College of Colloidal Therapeutics, as well as the School of Constitutional and Eclectic Medicine. He is currently planning to establish an international hospital specializing in applied colloidal therapeutics, emphasizing easy and affordable access for people in the Western Hemisphere. And he's also a member of National Academy of Research Biochemists, International College of Applied Kinesiology, American College of Applied Nutrition, and a bunch of chiropractic associations, councils, and societies. Together with his associates in the International College of Regenerative Medicine, they give courses, training, treatment, and coaching for both professional healthcare workers as well as patients. They even send out teams to different countries for seminars, retreats, and other venues for practice and education, spreading the incredible effective health solution knowledge that even can battle cancer. As a long-time researcher into this subject, he comes on the forum to account for the history of cancer cures, emphasize on cure, with a full survey so you will know what actually works and how well. And especially in part two, we will delve into the matter, hands-on understanding what cancer is, how it is caused, and of course, how it can be prevented as well as cured. John relates to us so much information that you may have to listen to this program twice to get everything. I know I had to. And because we don't really live in a free world, but rather in a corpocracy where you can't be upfront about facts that threaten the oligarch's profitable multi-billion dollar industry, I cannot claim that regenerative medicine cures cancer. But if you give this conversation a chance and learn all the interesting facts from history as well as contemporary then you can look into the matter yourself and make up your own mind. So far, that's still legal. So, fasten your seatbelt, sit back and prepare for a shocker. Welcome to Forum Borealis, John. Well, thank you. It's uh, so nice to be with you again now. I uh, I was hoping that we could do a show on what we're doing today, and I think uh, we're going to have some fun today. Yeah, me too. This is such a interesting topic, and it's it's just it hasn't got enough attention. And uh, having you on, um, elaborating on these things we're going to speak about today is great. Right, and I'm very impressed by you, John. Then I want us to later in the show to go into you know books, projects where they can get more information about these things we're going to speak about. Sure. 
But uh, in part one, we've scheduled uh, kind of the history of suppressed cancer cures, if you like. Very good. And uh, I, I think we should begin with, uh, well, you you came into this, I've noticed, I've heard from other interviews, you, you come into this uh, from not just because you're a doctor, because you are a regular doctor, but sure. you also have experience firsthand with cancer, right? Oh, yes. Yes, uh, with my own family. Mm. And is that when you discovered, was that how you got onto the situation about true cancer cures? Yeah, you know, that that's correct. Uh, when I was 15, uh, my mother came down with ovarian cancer. Mm. And um, she didn't discover it until it actually had burst. So one of her ovaries had swelled up was very malignant and then it burst and when it burst she bent over and fell to the ground and um, that meant that all the cancer cells were scattering across her entire lower system and um, at that time she entered into uh, an experimental program because she was terminal at that point mm. and involved using cobalt radioactive cobalt and um, all the people in her program died except for her wow. and she very strong-willed woman and I think through her mental powers of desiring to live to see me graduate from college and go on that uh, she was able to stick around but hmm. I started reading a book called world without cancer by Griffin mm-hmm. and uh, that was a thick book that talked about the politics of cancer and the relationship to how big pharma being corporately married to all the major pharmaceuticals around the world mm. uh, actually has a, a strategy to work together in ways that are definitely not in our best interests. Mm, <laughs> mm-hmm. So that opened up my eyes at the age of 15. I recommend it, that book for anybody because it's well documented and it's it's chilling, very chilling. So, so the author was? The what now? The author of the book was... Griffith. Uh, yeah, actually, I think it was Griffith. Sorry. Uh, Griffith. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, uh, Jekyll Island, mm. which got in more to the politics of it. But World Without Cancer was partly about half the book was about the politics leading up to the first cancer treatments. And they came out of some really nasty um, origins. Uh, and then um, he got into the, the actual uh, principles and safety and science behind Latrell. Mm. So, so this is an old book then? Yeah, back in the 70s. And it's still a classic. It's uh, it's just as important today to read it as it was back in the 70s. Yeah. Right. But I, I guess uh, to get to the beginning of the cancer cures, uh, we have to go f- further back. Is Max Gerson maybe the right person to start with? No, I think it goes back to Baird uh, back in 1902. Mm-hmm. He came up with pancreas enzymes could cure cancer. Hang on, Baird. What's his full name? John Baird. John Baird, okay. Yeah. And he was well-published. He was a PhD and um, got some great results. And the problem was they couldn't, not everyone could duplicate his results because the way in which that they prepared the pancreas tissue back then was inferior. And so some of the products had almost no enzymes in them, whereas he was getting really high-quality pancreas. And his his discoveries were amazing because they tied into Latrol about 60 years later. And uh, basically, it says that on day 54 of gestation, once conception has happened for human beings, the baby's own pancreas starts to work. 
And when it works, it secretes pancreatic enzymes and the baby doesn't need that 54 days into the womb. It, it's getting all of its nourishment for the mother. So why, he asked, mm-hmm. um, as an embryologist, he, uh, he was an expert in this field, why does the baby's pancreas begin to work on day 54? And he noticed that the invasive cancer-like trophoblasts that were helping the newborn, uh, the new, newly conceived uh, embryo maintain its implantation in the uterus stop becoming active. In other words, there are cancer-like cells called trophoblasts that we need to keep ourselves implanted in the uterus. But on day 54, they either immediately die, like boom, they just die, or they convert to healthy uh, placenta tissue. And that's because of the pancreas becoming activated. Hmm. Wow. So So this was uh, back in the beginning of the 1900s. 1902, yeah. And Mm. that went on in research until uh, almost the early teens, 1911, 1912, 1913. And the doctors that got good, strong um, potent pancreatic enzymes could get great results, but the doctors that were getting the inferior, and they had no way of knowing which company was making the good kind of pancreas, um, weren't getting good results. So the literature kind of gave up on, on Baird. But uh, then uh, then uh, Gerson came along. Gerson um, uh, came along uh, first in Germany during the 1920s. And in 1919, 1920, Gerson had accumulated a 99% cure rate for basically terminal dermal or skin tuberculosis, not for cancer. No, no, because cancer, was it really that big of a a disease back in the day? No, My my impression is that it's exploded in modern time. That's right. It it was tuberculosis back then, not cancer. Yeah, that was the thing, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, That's right. So then uh, going into the 20s, Gerson did his work quietly, which would later become one of the most regenerative approaches in medicine known, including a cure for cancer. But there was Koch. Uh, uh, his name was, uh, I believe it was Robert Koch. He was at University of Michigan, and he came up with an oxidizing substance called glyoxalide that was perhaps the first um, ma- uh, man-made cure for cancer. Um, mm-hmm. It was very, very effective. And basically what it did was it just went through the entire body and excited a respiratory burst, a, a an ability of the body to manufacture large amounts of hydrogen peroxide or ozone or singlet oxygen, uh, which could kill the cancer cells. But um, back then, uh, cancer wasn't a big business. And I, I'm assuming these guys were mainstream physicians of the day. So did they meet uh, much challenge given that it wasn't uh, the mafia that it is today? Well, there was a mafia back then. It was uh, At that time, it was the AMA. And whenever there was a big item that was potentially going to make a lot of money uh, for any kind of disease, mm. the AMA wanted in on it. Uh, actually, this one, <laughs> one individual, uh, Fishbean was his name, and uh, he was notorious. He was after Hoxie, which came out about the same time period. He was after Cock. Um, he eventually went after Rife, Royal Rife, who had the uh, special uh, bioenergetic plasma tubes that could destroy the organisms that fed that uh, helped to generate cancer. That lasted for quite some time, and then um, later on, it morphed into um, a protectionism, a a movement to protect the development of drugs that were going to treat cancer, 
so that they wouldn't have any competition on the scene when they went through their developmental stage. And um, unfortunately, that's the way it is up until the present moment. Mm-hmm. We're going to discuss later, you know, examine what cancer is, how we can uh, deal with it and stuff. But I, I think to know the history of this is, is very important to understand the phenomenon. Sure. And you said that there was a mafia back then. And I also heard you said that, uh, you know, the art of healing, if you like, had a schism or, a, you know, we could go one of two ways. And of course, as always, we went the wrong way. Uh-huh. Could you could you elaborate on that? Because we were that's in, uh, around the same time, isn't it? The late eighteen hundreds, uh, something. Well, let me give that history so everyone understands. Mm-hmm. Um, in the United States, up until uh, the, the mid eighteen hundreds, there was a group of doctors, uh, physicians, medical doctors that practiced herbal medicine. Mm-hmm. They practiced nutrition. They practiced detoxification. They practice fasting. They practice a milk cure where you just consume milk for long time periods. Um, And then in 1848, the American Medical Association was established. And in their charter, their charter states that their mission was to destroy the other systems of medicine and preserve only allopathic medicine, which means uh, allopathy means to render a condition incompatible with life. And they did that with poisons. So their job, as a, in a sense, it was a mafia, it was to destroy the competition. Hmm. And it took them until about 1930 to be successful at that with the Flexner Report, which was uh, generated by the executor of Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie, when he died, hmm. he favored homeopathic medicine big time. Big time. Really? Wow. Even though he's uh, of the elite. Oh, he loved homeopathic uh, medicine. He loved it. Mm, mm. And he left all of his money to to uh, encourage the propagation and the science of homeopathic medicine. But his executor uh, reversed course with all that money and gave it to the development of uh, pharmaceuticals, drugs. Wow. And that's why by 1930, almost all of the homeopathic schools and the naturopathic schools were wiped out in the United States. Yeah. Do you know um, Dr. Robin Falkov? Uh, no, I don't. She's also a homeopath and an acupuncture and doctor in oriental medicine. When we had her on, she told us how they hijacked even Hahnemann. Hahnemann's Academy, right. and and she went a little in, into that schism there. But say crush, destroy, well, they may have managed to monopolize public health, but isn't all the all the other streams of healing still around? Obviously, homeopathy is, yeah. but what about all the others that was around uh, before it became uh, homogenized? Uh, are all of them still around or have some branches died out? Well, they did go underground for a long time. Um, homeopathy survived, especially in different countries, hmm. like uh, Great Britain. The Queen's own physician back in those days was a homeopath. So despite what was happening here in the U.S., uh, homeopathy was preserved in Great Britain. And as a result, all of the British colonies really delved into homeopathic medicine, including India. So today, homeopathy or homeopathic medicine is the second largest system of healing in the world. The first largest Mm. is traditional medicines like herbs. Mm. And allopathic medicine is a drop in the bucket, but it makes all the money. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that's that's today. That's how that happens. So it depends on where you were in the world. Uh, now there are the long living people, which we'll talk about in, in part two, hmm. that don't need doctors. They don't get sick. <laughs> uh, actually, and not not to you know trumpet my own horn here, but and I mean, <laughs> I'm a believer in if you have something going for you. Pointed out. And that's one of my few advantages in life. And God knows I have enough problems, but I've never been uh, in a hospital. Well, obviously I've been in a hospital physically, but I've never been sick. I've never been uh, uh, in a bed. I, okay. I, I hardly ever get a cold, actually. Um, but then again, I meditate and do yoga and I think I have good genes. So th that may have something to do with it. In fact, I want to ask you about why it is that some people always get sick all the time. <laughs> so I'm not later in the show. Sure. So yeah, I, I can uh, second that. Uh, you know, God willing, it will continue. But of course, uh, as we get older, we get weaker and more fragile. So nobody is safe. But uh, yeah, uh, a sound immune system, nothing beats that man. That's right. Mm. That's right. And, and that's still true um, today. I mean, a lot of people may not know that no, no matter what cancer therapy that one selects or one undergoes, they all do the same thing. If it's chemo, at the end of the day, it does the same thing as radiation therapy. At the end of the day, that does the same thing as herbal therapy. Really? Yes. At the end of the day, that does the same thing as IPT, as ozone therapy, as uh, baking soda therapy. They all do the same thing. And that is at the cancer site, they cause that cancer to be just receive a tsunami of hydrogen peroxide or singlet oxygen to try to kill it. Oh, they all do this. Okay, because uh, I'm imagining, and this is far out of uh, you know my expertise, but sure. I'm imagining when you're being uh, radiated, for instance, that basically all they all they do is kill everything and hope. Let's hope we kill the cancer in the same uh, instance, and then hopefully what's left of your life force will build yourself up again. So when you compare that to, let's say, herbal. I imagine that, uh, you know, if you get herbs, you get nutrition, you get life-enforcing, confirming intervention. Uh, and I know this probably belongs to part two, but, but let's just address that right now because you're saying what you said. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, basically, uh, there's an intelligent design with natural approaches, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. Mm. But with man-made, highly refined approaches, especially those designed to make lots of money to support the second largest economy in the globe, which is the cancer control yeah. industry. Mm. There's no intelligent design in there. So radiation and chemotherapy will, as you say, Al, it destroys both the cancer cells, but also healthy cells. But it goes beyond that. Mm. It activates 30-fold the cancer stem cells. Mm. So it just causes cancer to come back. It's a it's an amazing way to make a lot of money through that economical system. Wow. And if the cancer cure were to come out tomorrow and be put across the world, it would send the entire globe into a deep, dark depression because of the cancer control industry being infiltrated into every status of all societies across the globe. So it's a real problem. And, you know, that's why it's called the cancer control industry, not mm. the cancer cure industry. Mm. Good point. 
Good point. But let's get back to the beginning then. So you mentioned John Baird and Max Gerson, and uh, I think it would be interesting for people to learn about their journey, you know, what, what they discovered, uh, how they did these things, and what and what reactions, backclashes it gave them. Sure. So uh, if you go back to uh, Cox vaccine, he was a professor of biochemistry, started really the Department of Biochemistry at uh, University of Michigan, highly respected. And he came out with this uh, substance that would propagate an oxygen respiratory burst throughout the entire system by an injection in the rear end. And it was um, basically a catalyst that was already uh, um, uh, tagged into a mechanism in the body that ought, that, is, that is supposed to make radical species of oxygen anyway, because that's something that is the basis of our immune system. And um, his results were astounding, but then they came in and they uh, discredited him because there were other cancer therapies that were uh, considered more status quo, and um, he eventually went into uh, oblivion. He had, I believe he fled to Mexico. Well, uh-huh. that happened several more times. Uh, Hoxie came out. He was a naturopath, and he had a marvelous uh, herbal remedy that was the basis of some of the first pharmaceutical drugs which often come from herbs, because when you highly refine an active ingredient in an herb, it loses its intelligent design and becomes harmful against healthy cells. And whereas Hoxie's vaccine, which was a proprietary formula, he was, at, he was approached by Fishbean, the head of the AMA, and said, look, I'll pay you a lot of money if you'll just uh, send up. And Hoxie said, sure, but I don't charge to treat my cancer patients. Will you promise me if you buy this from me that you will give it to anybody regardless of their ability to pay? And Fishbean said no. So Hoxie didn't sell it to him. Mm. Hence, a war started out. Hoxie was arrested repeatedly until he opened up his hospital in Mexico where they still give away the uh, the cancer treatment. Uh, hang on, hang on. So this is still being practiced down there? Yeah. Yeah, the Hoxie Clinic is in uh, not too far away from Tijuana, Mexico, and uh, they do. They give away their therapy. They they charge a minimal amount of fee if you can afford it, but they don't turn anybody away. That's so great. Yeah. Now, Hoxie has maybe close to a 25 to 30% success rate, and I want to mention this right now that the since 1950, the SEER data, that's the, that's the uh, Surveillance Epi- Epidemiological Review by the uh, CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, they've kept track of the results of conventional treatments for cancer. And since 1950, when the data was put together through 2005, there was 0% uh, effect, 0% impact against cancer by conventional treatment. 0%. And um, uh, when they did report a little bit of improvement here and there, uh, what it was was a statistical uh, manipulation. And he gave uh, the author of the study called War Against Cancer, written by the epidemiologist Fargo. He, he's on Amazon. Anybody can look that book up. Mm. He says that there was a lead time bias that occurred. And I'm, and what I mean by that is, is that as they began to develop uh, diagnostics that could detect cancer earlier and earlier, then when you found a cancer in its early stages, that you couldn't find before because there was a breakthrough with MRIs, for example, and you had a new tool mm. that could catch the cancer earlier, 
that patient was going to live longer anyway, mm. despite treatments you gave them. Mm. And so they just began to count that as a success. And they said, okay, to really count it as a success, we have to only keep stats for the first five years after detection, because if the person's going to die after five years, we, that wouldn't that wouldn't help us if we cut off. It ruins the statistics, doesn't it? Yeah, mm. if we cut off the results at the end of the fourth year, then wow, you know these really promising uh, advanced diagnostic tools will give us the uh, appearance that we have had success against treating cancer, but there hasn't been any, and that mm. he documents thoroughly from the Centers for Disease Control da data bank. So the only thing that really cures cancer, and we'll get into this later, is is immune therapy, immune therapy that uses intelligent design that is causes no harm to the healthy part of the human body and regenerates or helps the body to heal itself. Um, that's what will cure cancer. You can control it with a hoxy and with the cribiazin and with the cox vaccine um, and with the rife tube and all that. But to cure it, You have to get the immune system working full time mm. to recognize the problem and then to go on permanent surveillance to make sure it never comes back again. And we have a lot of science on how to do that. So anyway. But isn't the immune system really the only real physician? It is. No matter what. I mean, even if you're on an operation table, if you don't have a working Uh, immune system, you'll bleed to death, right? So I agree. whatever intervention happens with people, even if it's herbs or radiation or whatever it is, is always to try to restore or help the natural uh, healing vitality already in your body. I mean, that, that's my philosophy and view on it. We well, see that's what the AMA when it was founded in 1848 came out against. It specifically denied that amazing. It denied that the body would heal itself. It developed a system of using poisons to render a condition incompatible with life and then to throw it and, and flush it down everyone's throats. That's what they did. So to answer your question, that's not how they think. Yeah, but do you think they understood this? No. Or were they just blinded by no. ideology? and? Whatever? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. They were blinded because it was highly successful. They Their, their status in society rose. They had lots of money in their pocket and they, they had lots of claim to fame. And when the, the, uh, the first antibiotics came out during World War II, then they really had some success they could count, mm. even though the real stats say that that was a farce as well, that, that all of the plagues like tuberculosis and, uh, some of the common things that were treated with antibiotics weren't really cures for these diseases, what happened was they came back in different forms like chronic degenerative disease that we see today uh, to come back to haunt us. Plus, I've heard that uh, because of people's income went up, There you also go. they're being more clean, right. uh, understanding more about bacteria. You know, just lifestyle things uh, evaporated much of these old diseases. Well, the, the, you're right. What happened was the, uh, the industrial revolution brought forth these cities that were filthy, had no good water, yeah. had no good food, uh, no Charles Dickens conditions, basically. Yeah. And then everyone got sick with every plague that came down to town. But when they cleaned that up, just when they did ha proper hygiene, all the diseases went away. Mm. <laughs> It wasn't from the antibiotics. So, mm. um, Now, that's why we're in the mess we are today with the super germs, the resistant organisms that keep coming back because we're so toxic inside ourselves today. Yeah, yeah. 
So, so back to our guys here, um, the early heroes, Gerson, Baird. Yeah. Um, so the, the first guy who came out with bioenergetic medicine uh, was a guy by the name of Tesla. And, um, no, no, not, not Nikola. Or, yeah, yeah, Nikola Tesla. Really? Yeah. And, he was involved? Wow. Yeah, 1919, I believe. And during that same year, uh, the Arsvenal from France, who was a biophysicist, he was best friends with Pasteur and with Claude Bernard, the, the real hierarchy of the French medical movement. And they were the geniuses back then. Okay. This is the late 1800s. Um, he also came out with the same kind of device, just serendipitously. They later became very close friends. And what they were using was a device that would zap organisms while it improved the ozone inside systems that would clean out infectious organisms. And it did, it did uh, enhance life. It uh, made you feel really good, and uh, it was became extremely popular throughout the United States. Uh, there were a couple of different devices called the multi-wave oscillator was one. Wow. There was another one called the violet ray that Edgar Casey got all into, and they became mainstays until once again the AMA stepped in and said, you have to get rid of them or we will come after you and you will lo lose your licenses. This sounds like an early version of um, Wilhelm Reich's uh, invention probably not related or well it could they could have all been related in the sense of uh one inventor would learn about another inventor and they would kind of uh not plagiarize but they would borrow technology mm. uh but the original thinkers were uh nikola tesla uh royal rife and then uh, a few years later in 1948 there was a medical doctor who was studying how these devices uh could replicate what salamanders and newts did. And then finally, the last original thinker was Robert Becker, who showed how to use it with silver to uh, inspire true human regeneration. And um, those are the original thinkers. But there were a lot of people that borrowed from those guys. Oh, are these devices still around? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, uh, one of the things that I'm involved with, we can talk about later, but it's the latest ver uh, version of all those. And uh, we're very excited about it. And in fact, it puts us in a safe haven uh, because we're not treating disease. We're just treating the body's ability to, to heal itself, exactly what you're talking about, which is not a medical treatment. It's just, uh, you know, the, uh, the arrangement of living a good life and a good lifestyle with these devices that can enhance the body's ability to heal itself. And we don't make any claims for treating a disease. And that keeps us all in a safe haven. Yeah, because of these crazy rules about what you can say and can't say, right? Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's exactly. yeah, I have questions about that too later, but, but we get to that. So this device is called what? So the devices back then, uh, uh, the first one uh, was just called electrotherapy. I don't think that uh, Tesla had a name for his. Neither did D'Arsphenol. D'Arsphenol actually was quite well known in the U.S., uh, back at, up until about the 1950s. Hmm. But he wrote extensively on how the germ theory was related to the milieu, to the internal conditions, just like Claude Bernard wrote. He was a big fan of that the internal resistance or the internal environment determined if you got a germ-based infection or not, mm. which is the naturopathic principle. So, um, But with using these devices, there was the impetus, the insight to turn on those systems to restore the body's internal environment to a more pristine condition so that these germs didn't want to live there and they wouldn't take up root. 
Mm. Um, so that that uh, then evolved into the multi-wave oscillator and the violet ray. Violet ray was in an almost oh, it was in thousands of thousands of different hospitals and medical clinics, and uh, it was very very popular. It was causing all sorts of cures for this and that. Because the cost- oh, and we, we're talking before the World War II here, right? Yeah, yeah. Even after um, the um, uh, these devices lasted until the fifties, when they the last bastions of them were pretty much removed. And like for example, Rife uh, is a great example about how this whole thing happens. And um, so Rife had some technology that could blow up with radio waves certain infectious organisms that were causing us a lot of problems like tuberculosis Mm. um, and also cancer. He found that there was an organism, uh, progenitor cryptocities or cryptocytic progenitor that was always there, always there in cancer. And if you killed it, then the cancer would go away. So at any rate, um, he actually did see, literally, he saw under a special microscope which frequencies of radio uh, turned up high enough, kind of like a singer can shatter a glass, for example, mm. Uh, mm. were able to blow up certain organisms. But he only got a handful. He only had maybe 12. And then he got tied up with an engineer uh, named Hoyland. And he, uh, the engineer, discovered a lot of different secrets that Rife didn't know about because Rife wasn't an engineer like he was. And so Hoyland kept those secrets to himself. And then Rife had to flee the United States, and he was funded by a guy by the name of John Crane. And uh, Crane thought that Rife had all of the technology, but he didn't. But he, nobody knew that. So they were propagating uh, it, devices that did, just didn't work as good as the Hoyland devices. Well, at any rate, the point being, those have been re-engineered today. And so some of the Rife tubes, a few of them, were aware of Hoyland's technology have now been updated and upgraded to modern capabilities, and those are now making the circuit around the world. And I, I hope they work out well for everybody because they're pretty, they're pretty darn good. Well, what names are they known under? Um, I, I'm not going to mention it because that'll do damage to the to the group. But right. people can do their own research on Rife tube technology and make up their own choices. But uh, it's uh, it's really taking off now. It's really be- so. It still has to be somewhat underground. I'm sorry. It still has to be somewhat underground to survive. I think so because I, mm. if I mention certain names of people or in devices, that the next day, <laughs> the next week, you know, uh, there mm. could be people that could be hurt. So I don't want to do that. But uh, oh, I see. I see. Uh, I mean, I did. Uh, that happened with me with Tullio Simoncini. I mean, Tullio came here in July of 2006, basically by August turned over his baking soda cure to me to help teach doctors here in this country. Mm-hmm. And then within a month or two, it had been blackballed by the powers that be. They mm-hmm. threatened everyone's licenses to be yanked if they wow. if they actually fed baking soda inside the tumor itself like his main therapy was, you know, requ- it was required. Yeah, we'll get back to Tulio and his therapy. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of names flying around, and most people haven't heard anything about these things. So, so we'll try to take it a little chronological to ease it, you know. Sure. So, so uh, I believe uh, we have more to learn about uh, Gerson and Beard. Um, and we were mentioning these uh, machines, these um, electrotherapy oscillators. 
Yeah, let's go over the dates so one more time so people can come back and see where we're at. So in 1902, yeah. John Baird came out with enzyme therapy for cancer, very successful. Then um, about uh, 1920, early 20s, uh, Robert Koch out of University of Michigan came out with his injectable that triggered basically hydrogen peroxide ozone generation in the human body, and that was very successful. Mm-hmm. Then Gerson was just about ready to flee Germany and come to the United States with his therapy for tuberculosis. And about 1934, he started in this country treating cancer patients with his diet therapy. So 1934. Then um, in the same year, 1934, Stanford University and another major university got together with Royal Rife. And they started doing studies with patients that had just a week or two to live. And they brought back over 50% of those patients that were just barely alive. Hmm. And uh, it was dependent upon their age. And I don't know 100% of the case histories, but I know a great deal about them. And if you were 50 or over, Cox, I'm sorry, Rife's technology wasn't going to bring you back. But if you were 40 and under, Hmm. you had a really good shot, even if you had only two or three weeks to live, to to recover from that cancer. Hmm. And that, that lasted through 1937 when Fishbean shut it down, uh, who was in charge then of the AMA. They had a little bit more elbow room until about 1939, and then that was, it was over. At that point, every device that was the plasma tubes got confiscated or had to be destroyed. They tracked down who had bought them, and it was a terrible mess. And there were the senior pathologists and physicians in this country that had these devices. They, it was widespread by 1939. Mm. And uh, the AMA just came in and swooped it in. Okay. So then um, Hoxie was the herbalist who during the same time period when Fishbean was being a a real bully from 1920 to about 1940, really gained popularity because he didn't charge for his his herbs. Mm. And he was run out of the country. So in 1950, both he and Gerson and um, uh, Royal Rife, they all basically had to flee to, to Mexico. What was this guy's name? Poxy? Uh, Hoxie. 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 Okay. Yeah, that was his. He was a naturopath. Oh yeah, oh, the the guy with the Hoxie clinic in Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It was a mm. uh, uh, based on bloodroot. If you used it in small amounts with other herbs. Mm. And then um, we have uh, about the same time period. Um, you've got um, uh, the the immunotherapies. Cooley's vaccine came out, which was he was the forerunner to uh, the Sloan Kettering. And uh, he was in charge of Sloan Kettering for a while, and he had tremendous success with use, inducing fever, which is, what, to your point, the body's own ability to heal itself is best during fever. Mm. And it's a therapeutic fever. And it turned out that Gerson is not well known for this, but Gerson diet therapy will induce fever. And when you induce fever, you win. <laughs> if, you, if, it's, if you're feeding that patient properly – and they're really built up with their uh, tools of their immune system by giving it to them ahead of time, certain minerals, certain vitamins, mm. that kind of thing. And you're doing enzyme therapy and you induce fever, you're going to win against cancer. Mm. End of story. And these devices only add to the icing on the cake. So um, uh, now uh, about that same time period, you saw um, uh, Kasiak or uh, Case, Ruth Case, who was the nurse at discovered the ESIAC tea, mm-hmm. and ESIAC tea also induces fever. Uh, when it does, you win almost every time. 
And all of these therapies, uh, with, with a few exceptions, you could count on for getting about a 30 to 33% success rate that you would not get with standard therapy. You would not. So, so all of these you mentioned, all these seven uh, different people, they have a success rate of about 30, 35%. Yeah, overall, that's correct. Mm. And uh, with the Rife, you got a, a lot higher if the person was under 40. But remember, mm. people that were back in the 30s were just stronger than the, than the weaker people in civilization today. They were strong. Yeah, but then again, uh, if you were 40 back then, that's like uh, being 60 today, isn't it? No, 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 <laughs> no? no, absolutely not true. Okay, no. Okay. Uh, the, let me, let me, let me explain. So mm -hmm. in, in 1900 in the United States, and this would be true in Europe, if you were 45 at the, uh, during 1900, you were virtually guaranteed to live to the age of 78, even 80 without having any significant disease hit you. Wow. Yeah, it was the babies that were dying at high rates. Yeah, yeah, good point. And those stats, yeah, and those stats were rolled together to make it appear that uh, Americans were only living to about forty-five. That's not true. We lived very long, but we lived without disease. And then that changed uh, when we. Uh, and that's that's actually living. Yes. Mm. Yes, and that so that stat is wrong. Uh, you have to look at it in the correct in the correct context. So the long living people have, um, you know, really just die of natural causes. They just stop eating slowly until they stop eating. They have no disease, no heart disease, no arthritis, no cancer. And then they stop drinking. And then it's three to four days later, they pass. And everyone in the village knows it. That's how we're supposed to die. Mm. But because of this perversion that modern civilization, which is based one sixth of the American economy is based upon medicine, we can't talk about those truths because it makes us look like that our medical system doesn't know what it's doing. Mm. And it challenges uh, the commercial uh, interests. Uh, you know, we live in a corporacy, so everybody knows that by now. That's right. Uh, but it has deep ramifications even into these areas we're talking about now. So the Ruth case is the last one you've mentioned, but I, I have notes uh, here for several more names that you have talked about. So okay. since you're giving us a timeline, should we just run through all of them up to now and, and then maybe go deeper into the interesting aspects of what the different people did? Yeah, so in review, uh, they all enable the body to produce hydrogen peroxide in higher amounts, especially with fever. And that's how they work, and that's how they succeed. Mm. And the normal healthy tissues are not affected. They, they are not harmed. With the, um, the conventional treatments, they suppress fever, and they induce damage in healthy tissues, particularly the bone marrow, and they activate cancer stem cells 30-fold. That's chemo and radiation. Both are known to do that. Mm. So now in 1902 through about the 1950s, we have these individuals that were either using immunostimulation or they were inducing hydrogen peroxide generation inside the human body. And we have herbs that do it. We had glyoxalide that did it. We had enzymes that could attack directly to release hydrogen peroxide when it ate away at certain uh, things. So now we're up until about 1950 or so when the uh, uh, Rene Case's uh, herbal uh, remedy came out called Isiac. 
And it ran through the 70s when it became very popular, and it's still legal in Canada. Canada sells it over the counter as a cure for cancer, which is... Wow, they even call it that. Yeah, they do because they won in court. They won a court battle and the court said, leave them alone, let them do it. Mm. But, but at this time, isn't this also when Otto Warburg came into the picture with he, what he discovered about uh, you know, oxygen and acidic milieu and all that? I, I, I couldn't understand the name. Which name? O Otto Warburg. Oh, Otto, Otto Warburg. Warburg, yeah. yeah. So, sorry. Yes, you're correct. Well, the Warburg effect has been completely misunderstood. Um, Warburg had some areas that he was absolutely correct about, but he also had some areas that were really, really wrong. I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. Cancer, ultimately, and we now know this, it does not care what kind of metabolism it uses. It does not have to undergo uh, the Warburg effect to stay alive. It usually initiates with the Warburg effect, meaning that it will ferment a normal, healthy cell will convert its metabolism from burning oxygen and sugar to burning less oxygen and sugar, and that's called fermentation. It's a version of, of fermentation, as opposed to a highly trained athlete that is going to um, you know, use, use uh, uh, aerobic, aerobic metabolism to uh, produce 38 times more energy per uh, fuel molecule as opposed to cancer's fermentation. So, uh, but now we know that cancer doesn't care. It, it will initiate by going into the Warburg effect, but then it comes back and it can use up to six different forms of, um, of metabolism. And that's how it fools cancer therapy. Mm. That's how it does it. Right. So, um, what we've talked about so far that it cannot fool is toxic forms of oxygen because toxic forms of oxygen will go after all of those different ways in which cancer cells can make a living. Hmm. It, does, it doesn't, uh, cancer cannot protect itself from, from too much ozone, for example. It will die. Um, but the cancer therapies that are out there, including the naturopathic therapies, cancer can hide, can run and hide. Hmm. And here's what happens, Al. Here's what, exactly what happens. Mm -hmm. So you have a diagnosable form of cancer and it's all over your body. And let's say you do a uh, hundred grams of vitamin C a day, every single day, over eight hours a day, slowly going into your veins, and you eat a no sugar, no starch diet. And in 90 days, or let's say 60 days, because this is a case that, that I helped to, to put through it to success, mm -hmm. you're completely cancer free. Well, that's a misnomer because some cancer cells that have figured out a way to resist vitamin C therapy that you cannot detect are still there. Like, like sleeper cells. Sleeper cells, yes. And because the, the causations to cancer were not being treated with the vitamin C alone, mm. the cancer does come back. And when it comes back, the vitamin C will not work against it. Mm. And the same thing is true for chemotherapy, and the same thing is true for radiation therapy. Once those small number of cells that survive, that are not detectable, come back with a vengeance, they're unstoppable, except through the by treating the cause of cancer, mm. and then you can cure even those tough cases. Mm. So, so Warburg, despite his Nobel Prize, his approach is uh, red herring. Yeah, half of it is. Half of it, the first half is correct, mm. and the other half is a red herring. Yes. So, what part is correct then? 
Well, um, the part where if you lower down the amount of oxygen giving uh, to a tissue, um, 100% of the time when you hit about 65% of the normal amount of oxygen, all of the cells there will convert to what he called the cancer metabolism, which is aerobic glycolysis. That means fermentation for uh, mammal cells, fermentation. Mm. It, does not, it does require oxygen, but just small amounts. A lot of people misquote that and say anaerobic uh, glycolysis. That's not true. Well, what they don't tell you is, and neither did Warburg, that cancer under the right circumstances, if it's not getting what it needs with aerobic glycolysis, says, screw you, I'll just go back to oxidative phosphorylation, you know, mm. and do whatever I damn well please. And that's how it avoids one kind of therapy going after destroying the cancer's ability to use aerobic glycolysis. It says, okay, you don't want me to ferment sugar? Fine. I'll just go back to breaking down protein or breaking down fat. I don't care. Mm. Mm. So um, all these people we mentioned so far, chronologically here, Baird, Koch, I think Cook, Koch, what you call him. Um, yeah, yeah, Robert Koch. Yeah. Yeah, Gerson, Reif. Yep. Uh, I've noticed Hoxie, Cooley, Case, Casey. Yep, Renee Casey. Yeah. So how did how did their the work fare? I mean, you mentioned already that some of it is still around, but what fate did they, these people meet? Were they rewarded? Were they punished? Uh, I mean, you said some were chasing out of the country, but uh, I think it's interesting to know their personal fates too, uh, to, for people to understand uh, how these breakthroughs are actually met and dealt with by the, I guess we could call it the corrupt forces. Yeah, I think the person who emulates that the best mm -hmm. is uh, William Donald Kelly, to answer your question. Yep. He was a dentist. He studied all these groups that I've just made reference to. Mm -hmm. And he had pancreatic cancer himself. He cured himself of pancreatic cancer. He took on a patient who also had pancreatic cancer, who later became his wife. He cured her. And then word got out. And as a dentist, he was being inundated by people knocking on his door saying, would you please help me? I've got um, dying of cancer. And so his success rate was among the best, among the best. Which, uh, how high was it, approximately? Well, uh, I'll give you a stat that can be uh, that can be taken to the bank, and that's for pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. um, so Robert Good, who was the first immunologist, a premier immunologist who was to run Sloan Kettering for a short while, um, he was approached by a uh, a medical graduate at Cornell named Nick Gonzalez. And Gonzalez had heard about William Donald Kelly. This goes back to the 80s, late 70s. Okay. And he said to Robert Good, he goes, you know, I'm really interested in William Donald Kelly. Is he really getting a cure for cancer? I'd like to go find out. And Robert Good was open-minded. I've actually met him mm. and before he passed. And, uh, and Robert Good said, you know what? Yes. I said, he said, here's what you do. You'll do a best case series. And he said, what? What's the best case series? He goes, look. If you can prove, if you can take a cancer that we know that conventional medicine cannot touch, the conventional medicine has 0% success rate, and you can demonstrate even one case that's verified that Kelly cured, then we know that Kelly's therapy works, at least to that one case, and it's scientifically valid. And so Gonzalez says, great, 
which yeah yeah that's what we call the proof is in the eating of the pudding right yes uh, hippocrates said uh the result at the bedside was definitive, uh, said everything you needed to know. Mm. So they made a decision that it was either mesothelioma or it's going to be pancreatic cancer because they're both completely impossible to cure, right? Okay. According to with conventional methods. With conventional methods. So yeah. um, at that time, they knew that pancreatic cancer had 0%. And so he said, I'm going to pick pancreatic cancer. And Robert Good said, great, now go down there. And when you go through the files, make sure that you have a biopsy to prove that the pancreas had a tumor in it that was verified by a pathologist. And then if they've lived for longer than five years, then you can make a statement that the, you know, because somebody diagnosed with pancreatic therapy will never live beyond three years, even early stages. They're going to die wow. fast. Wow. So usually it's three months. So three years is, is really uh, uh, conservative. Most people are dead within three to four months. Okay. So he went down there and Kelly opened up the books. He said, open up all of my files. And it took him an entire summer, but he found 25 bona fide pancreatic cancer cases. Mm -hmm. And this is what was weird. This is a cool story. So <laughs> he then calls the families of the first 11 out of the 25, and he finds out that all of them were dead. And he goes, boy, this is not good. <laughs> and he was about ready to give up. But he goes, no, nope, I've, I've, I've taken my summer off. I'm going to track down all 25. On the 12th call, the person was still alive. <laughs> and on the 13th and on the 14th call and the 15th call and the 16th, all the way until he completed all 25. And all of those people that were, uh, were living after the first 11, he said, he said to himself, wow. I almost gave up. I am so glad I kept up. So the last half bunch were alive. Yeah, they were all alive. And so he goes, that's strange. So why? So he calls mm. them all back, the first 11, and he found out that none of the first 11 had stuck to the program. No. Mm. They hadn't done the program. Mm. But the other uh, 14 had religiously done Kelly's program, and they were all alive. And so Kelly was using the pancreatic enzymes from, from Baird. He was using the uh, techniques of uh, bringing uh, the, the metabolism, the immune system up to full par with the diet and with uh, other vitamins. Um, and later on, he got uh, extensively involved with, um, with other uh, uh, techniques that, like with detoxification that uh, made him very, very successful. And so Nick Gonzalez... Sorry, his approach was like a unified field theory. He, he drew from all these guys. He did. He did. The, the best. That's correct. Yeah. And, mm. and he was able to get the immune system to kick on the production of hydrogen peroxide like crazy. And when it did, he, he won. He won every time. But, but it is so strange. The first 11 he called were dead. Did he get yeah. the, this list in a specific order or... No, no, no. It just happened. Well, I'll tell you one thing. He's got uh, persistency. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> it's a good thing he didn't give up. Yeah, yeah, it was quite a story. It was an amazing story. So, but, but, um, but when did he live? He's more modern, right? Modern age. He, di he died just a uh, you know a couple decades ago. Um, right, right. Uh, but his work was carried on until Nick Gonzalez passed on uh, a couple years, less than a couple years ago, out of New York. Okay. And Nick uh, was also able to get, uh, believe it or not, Nick had about a 33% success rate as well. 33. Yes, 33. So my, my whole objective has been to look at causations to cancer. That's why I know so much about 
why Otto Warburg only had half the equation. Mm, mm. And to look at causation that would get maybe 80, 85% of the patients well, and that's done with immunotherapy, with internal, not external, where you do stuff in a laboratory that is very expensive to induce a regenerative event, but rather let's excite the human body's ability to regenerate itself. And that's what I've studied for 40 years. So that leads us into about early 1980, 1982 with cesium chloride. Um, A gentleman by the name of Brewer, Brewer was a PhD, and he decided that there were two approaches to cancer uh, from his view of reviewing everyone. He said, Otto Warburg said that uh, cancer produces an acid-like state and that if you alkalinize it, you can stop the cancer. And so he chose to figure out how to alkalinize. And he was a pretty well-trained materialist. He was a material physicist. He understood uh, the periodic table and he knew that cesium and rubidium and then potassium were the most alkaline substances on the planet that were in the natural food chain. Mm. Uh, Potassium being the most important one by far. And um, noticing that Gerson he studied Gerson, and he noticed that Gerson used a lot of potassium. And he said, well, Gerson was on. Yeah, because because Gerson had diet therapies. Yeah, he was really into potassium. I wanted to ask you what kind of food or nutrition he, he had, and, and this was one of the key ingredients. Very important, the potassium, yes. And mm. um, But uh, Brewer took it a step further and got something more alkaline than potassium, and he chose the cesium, natural cesium, not radioactive cesium. And uh, lo and behold, uh, he got a group of doctors. He did mice experiments at University of Wisconsin. He had uh, other university professors start taking up his uh, his cesium chloride therapy. They did it under uh, very exact conditions, and they were getting 50% of their cases well. Wow. Very effective. 50%. And then yes. Hans Neiper was the most uh, the biggest champion of it. He was never attacked for doing it. Whereas in this country, all the doctors had to leave the country after they uh, published their results. And they had some great results. No good deed goes unpunished. No good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> but yeah. Kelly, didn't he have also higher than 35%? Yes. Yeah, Kelly was the first guy that definitely had the best statistic for success. How, how much? Well, it depended on the cancer. But um, yeah. there, there were certain times during his, um, his, uh, his career – that he had upwards of 70%. And if you averaged all of them together over his years, which you have to do because if you're going to compare apples to apples, um, it was was better than 33%. I'd say uh, it was probably between 40 and 60% overall. Hmm. So so about the same as Brewer. Yeah, Brewer Brewer had 50%. And and anybody who did – now, Brewer wasn't a physician, but his people – had case histories that are phenomenal. I mean, phenomenal. But, but neither was Tesla. Uh, I think uh, the understanding is key here. Um, what you understand is actually what matters oh, yeah. <laughs> more than what certificate you got. Yeah, if you- but there is this fascinating Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> you know who I mean? <laughs> we need to hear about him, John. Yeah, he... Uh- Real-life Frankenstein, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know who that is in my mind, because I don't know who it is for you, is uh, George Kreil. Uh, oh, I was thinking about the guy with, uh, with the chicken hearts. Yeah, that's Alexis Carell. That's Alexis Carell. Yeah, okay. but, but uh, the guy who actually created uh, living cells out of uh, dead cells w- w- was George Kreil, a great surgeon at a Cleveland clinic. And uh, 
Um, so I say that in a in a beneficent way, not a negative way. But um, yeah, Carell uh, used uh, the basis for laboratory analysis to determine what re- regeneration was, and then. McGarrison studied the long-living people to see what it was, both in humans as well as animals. And then um, some of that was adapted by some physicians until uh, I was blessed. And uh, I ran into some physicians that had really brought it forward, and they helped save my life. So I learned from them. And uh, uh, so from a causal point of view, I see where the oxygen, free radical, you know, hydrogen peroxide enters into the picture. And I also see where baking soda enters into the picture, and I understand where enzymes enter into the picture from a causal point of view, uh, how things flow downstream into the areas that occupy the, phys- the PhDs at the universities, I could care less about because they're looking, they're looking for something they can claim to fame on and make a drug for that comes way downstream from the cause, from the mm. cause. And we'll get into that, what I think causes cancer here toward the end of this. But anyway, that's where we're at now. So, But tell us about uh, the chicken hearts because it's, it's almost unbelievable. Yeah. So, all right. So Alexis Corral in 1902 um, had figured out how to sew blood vessels together. And he was uh, the first in the world to be able to do that. And he was um, uh, teaching anatomy at the University of Lyon. When one of his colleagues said to him, look, um, every year I donate a week to go to Lourdes where they have this miraculous healing water. And there's a medical center there that studies this. uh, But I can't do it this year. And I really need someone to take my place. Would you do that for me? And Alexis Carell had always wanted to do it. So he said, sure. So he got on one of the trains. He was in charge of a group of patients. And one of them was Marie Bailey, who had... Uh, tuberculosis all throughout her stomach and she looked to be about seven months pregnant she was very young she was 23 and um, she was about ready to die and he 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 thought she would die it's a 24-hour pl- uh, uh, train ride and um, she was very unstable but somehow this is in France right? yeah this is in France so they went from Lyon mm. down to Lourdes and uh, about 30 miles an hour by train and it took them all day and then uh, they finally get there and they she was so delicate that they had to use a stretcher, and they brought her right next to uh, the grotto where the spring is, and they sprinkled water on her belly. And there were four physicians observing, and Carell was one of them, and he wrote notes furiously. And there were three nurses, and all of them were experts in tubercular diseases. They, uh, they were experts in them. It was a plague back then. Mm. Mm. And they witnessed uh, when the water hit her stomach it started to dissolve this extension, this swelling, and in 45 minutes, it was down to normal. And she got up and walked off. Instantly, like you could see it. Yes, but the Catholic Church only counts it if it happens under a minute, where in her case, it took 45 <laughs> minutes. That's the rule. They have a rule. So wow. they didn't categorize it as a miraculous cure, but there were four physicians and three nurses that witnessed it, and he took copious notes, and I have most of the notes. Okay. Wow. So now he questions, going back to Lyon, the University of Lyon, he questions, listen, everyone, I witnessed an amazing event over a period of three days. This woman is now normal. We need to study the water. Hmm. And for that, he was kicked out of France. Hmm. 
already back then. Huh? He was kicked out. Even though, even though they were so superstitious back then. Yeah, he was kicked out of France. So in 1902, he flees. He doesn't speak English. He goes to Quebec. And Quebec, uh, he took up residence for a short while. And then University of Chicago, which had been basically founded by Rockefeller, invited him to come down because everyone wanted to know how to sell blood vessels together. Mm. And he came down and spent about two years there. Um, and then in 1906, he uh, was invited by the Rockefeller Institute in New York to come and spend the rest of his career to devise the methods that were going to take about 50 years so that organ transplants could occur. They, that's what they wanted to do. And so Rockefeller funded that, and Carell was the head of the group. And this is important. So remember, in 1902, he witnessed a miracle via the water from Lourdes. And now in 1906, he tries to grow tissue, healthy tissue, in a Petri dish and keep it alive indefinitely because that would be the way that they would preserve organs from the time that it was taken from a donor to the time it would be put into somebody else. And they had to figure out a way to keep that organ alive because otherwise they die in just a few minutes. They had they didn't have the techniques that, that we have today. Mm, no, so no. he started with tissue cultures and they failed. 1906, they failed. 1907, they, they, these are the best minds in the world with all the funding in the world. Mm. 1908, they fail. 1909, they fail. And he decides to go home for a vacation. So in 1909, he goes back to Lourdes. And he sees a second miracle. And this time, it's not a 23-year-old woman who could have done auto-suggestion to cure herself, to fake. This time, it was an 18-month-old baby. And it had been born without eyes that were developed. Right. Like animals. There's no placebo. uh, Yes, exactly. Mm. You got it. So when the water hit the baby's eyes, the eyes instantly, within a minute – had full development occur right there and as they watched. Excuse me, I, I have to take a trip to France immediately. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so he was the first future Nobel Prize winner because in 1912 he wins the Nobel Prize in medicine. He was the first and maybe the only medical uh, Nobel Prize winner to see not one, but two miraculous healing events. Now, this is mm-hmm. important. Because I'm the only person on the planet that will say this. I have everything he's ever written. I've studied it repeatedly. You, you mean you like the original uh, material? I have some of the copies of his original handwriting, but mostly it was he, he published. He put them into print. Okay. Um, but I, I can tell you that I'm the only person in the world that can tell you what I'm going to tell you. So he goes back to New York. He fails again in 1910. He fails again in 1911. And he was failing again in 1912 to be able to grow healthy tissue in a Petri dish before it dies within 48 hours. It always died, no matter what they did, hmm. until he had a thought. And this is me saying it. There's, no, there's nothing written about this. Hmm. He goes to himself. This is how I'm thinking, because I know how inventors think. I've been around too many of them. Hmm. He says, I've got to have that water from Lourdes to grow the darn tissue. <laughs> yeah. Where can I get that water? But he's in New York, and the only uh, transportation is steamer. Hmm. That's a that's a long you know week's worth of trip going one one direction. How can he get the water? So he thinks and he thinks and he thinks and he goes, "Wait a second, what happens if I harvest the water from healthy embryonic chickens 
because I'm trying to grow healthy, young chicken heart. Why don't I take it and extract the water from embryo chicks and just the water? Will that help? Will that be the magical water that I'm looking for that will cause my uh, more developed heart tissue to stay alive forever? So, so his thinking was that if I take water from a living being, it may be as vital as this Lord's water. Yes. Bingo. Okay. Bingo. Huh. And he discovers the four rules for regeneration that I base my entire discipline on of regenerative medicine. He, number one, the water had to be changed out completely every 48 hours or the experiment would be ruined. Mm-hmm. Number two, it was a thin layer of tissue, very, very thin. So the laboratory air could easily penetrate that tissue because it was such a thin piece of tissue. So full oxygen penetration. Number three, there were embryonic growth factors that are the mainstay of all long living cultures. Hmm. He happened to select the very water that had embryonic growth factors in it that years later was discovered to be the mainstay component to the diet, including Gerson's therapy, that caused human beings to live long without disease. Hmm. Embryonic food factors. And number four, pillar four, was the electrical signals. The electrical signals have to be perfect, and he just got lucky. He picked heart tissue that has its own electrical signals. He could have picked a tissue that didn't have those electrical signals, and he missed it. Yeah. But he picked the right one. And that, uh, so, so that made him uh, achieve, uh, yeah, what? Yeah, and, and that was the four pillars. When I read his work, I, I picked out of it the four pillars. I was the first to pick it out. There's no, no one else that ever did that. And, cool. and I have to say that I found that to be exactly the same thing, detoxification, oxygenation, embryonic food factors, and electrical occurrence. That's the same thing that happens in long-living cultures. Mm-hmm. They live in pristine environments that are full of different bioenergetics from the soil, from the water, from the food itself. And then the other three uh, pillars they practice. Like, for example, the Hunzas programmed their food to run out the last month before the young shoots come up in the gardens. Mm-hmm. So they fasted. Mm. And they fasted on the mineral-rich water. And so if you were an anthropologist and you were stupid and you came in the early spring and you looked at the Hunzas, you would write that they were the most unhealthiest of looking people in the world, not realizing they had been fasting for three or four weeks. <laughs> yeah. It's an absolute essential ingredient to live long is, is complete cleansing at least once a year and regularly each day, which is what the water does. Now, the water is supercharged with the fourth pillar's energy that I speak of, with the zeta potential in the minerals, and that they drink copiously, and so they're imbibed with electrical current all day long by drinking the water, and that goes into the food chain. And that's what grows embryonic growth factors that are regenerative factors, and even if we eat the same diet, Al, even if we eat the same diet, and it's not grown that way, we will not live long. Mm. It has to be with this energized water that delivers the minerals, that starts the food chain, and that's what's the magic of that diet. Mm. 
It's not what's reported in the literature. Right. But when I call him Dr. Frankenstein, it's because he was actually able to keep a, a chicken heart alive for a very long time. 34 years, yeah. That's uh, that's so amazing. Can, can we do that today with, with the conventional? No, because they made a mistake. Uh, he, he, he didn't keep a chicken heart alive. He kept slices of chicken heart alive. Mm. And it kept growing and they had to cut it off because it kept overgrowing the, out of the Petri dish. Uh, it was a special kind of flask, really. But back in the 50s, and this is where science took a left turn. It was a mistake. There was a scientist who uh, did careful experimentation of the lifespan of human tissue. And uh, he decided to use synthetic media, not the juice water extracts from the embryo tissue like Corel used. Mm. He decided to use synthetic crap Mm. as the way to show what the lifespan of human tissue was. And he said, listen, after 50 replications, then the, the tissue can't make any more replications. Therefore, uh, Carell's experiment was a farce, hmm. but it was comparing apples to oranges yeah. because he didn't use the original medium, the growth medium that Carell used. Hmm. But everybody went with him. And so science in the, as of 1957 said, oh, human beings have a definitive lifespan and it's about 80 or so. And these long-lived cultures must be faking it. So in 1980, they began a campaign here, uh, the powers that be, mm -hmm. for two reasons. There was a Cold War that we had with Russia, the Soviet Union, and they were bragging about the Abkhazians who, were, who lived to 140, 150. Yeah, yeah. And we didn't want them to prove that in their confines of their Soviet system, they had people that lived to 140 because that would show up the lifespan of Americans, right? Yeah, it, it was prestige. I mean, they, they had to best each other on er, any area. Yep, <laughs> so, yep. Yeah. so they just they uh, used propaganda to say it was a farce when it was real. It was real. Uh, I've heard it's the yogurt and the kefir and stuff, <laughs> these cocaine. Yeah, well, they have it's – this, it's this environment of four pillars with the magic of this electrical current. And that's the basis for what we'll talk about as to what I think is mm. to bring us back today, how to do it. But – yeah, and that's and then the same thing happened with um, with the people that were uh, you know studying other cultures. They said, "Oh, they're liars." Mm. All those all living people, they're all liars. Well, yeah, yeah. They say, "Oh, they don't have records of when they were yeah, born," yeah. as if people don't know how old they are, right? Yeah, as if right. as if we haven't been able to count the rounds around the sun <laughs> since dawn of mankind. It's so uh, obnoxious this dismissive attitude. Yeah. Exactly. And so mm. Hayflick, who did the experiments in the sterile water, uh, sterile solutions to keep the um, uh, human tissue alive, Hayflick then had to attack Corel. So now, now we had the long living culture that was attacked through propaganda campaigns. Mm. And now the Hayflick believers went after Corel. Mm. And they used the excuse of a lab tech who only had six months experience uh, keeping the chicken heart tissue alive. And she was a junior person who uh, – they had nothing but MD-PhDs the entire 32 years of the experiment keeping it going, whereas she came in the last six months mm. and didn't understand how to do what she was doing and said, oh, it was, all, it was all a farce. So now medicine in America had won. They had won the propaganda war. Mm. And we're in trouble, deep trouble, because no one paid attention to that except Gerson kept going. Mm. Good for him. Yeah, his therapy comes the closest to Corell's. 
Uh, okay, so that's still around too. Yep, that's still uh, very. What, what's his? Uh, I'm, I'm keeping tabs here on the different success rates. <laughs> Where would you put him? I would put almost all of the good alternative medical clinics and medical hospitals in the 30 to 33 percent success range. Okay. Now this is for end stage cancers now. Oh, okay, that's important. Yeah. Okay, this isn't for you know stage one. Stage one and stage right. two they have much higher. Mm. Okay, but for the end stage. Even that is amazing. You're basically yeah. bringing them back from death. Yes, and, and CDC says with their SEER data that uh, modern conventional medicine has like almost 0% success rate. Yeah, yeah, that's important here also to... Okay, so it's big. It's mm. big. Now, the next one that I want to talk about is uh, both Hammer's work um, out of Germany and IPT, insulin potentiated therapy that came out in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. Hammersburg is the name? Yeah. I'm sorry. What was the name? Um, his name is Hammer, Dr. Hammer. Hammer. Okay. And Dr. Hammer uh, noticed that the uh, cerebral spinal fluid of the brain under certain CAT scans would have a perturbation, a ring-like structure that would appear in people that had cancer in some place distant in the body. Let's say the, uh, the liver, for example. Mm. And he thought that was strange, and he began to discover that these concentric rings that are that are viewable under CAT scan 100% of the time, if you know the technique with anybody that has cancer, that when you cured the cancer, those rings disappeared inside the brain. Hmm. So he thought, well, in his particular case, he noted that when he came down with testicular cancer himself, that it was three weeks after he had an emotional shock. Hmm. And his emotional shock was is that his son had been killed in an automobile accident. And he also knew three weeks prior to being told that his son was dead or four weeks, he had just had a complete 100% physical and he was 100% healthy. Mm. So he knew he was healthy. And then suddenly three weeks after he was told his son was dead, he has testicular cancer. And he thinks that came from emotional shock. That's so interesting. I, I have note actually to ask you about emotions and consciousness for part two. But go on, go on. Yeah, that's pillar four. That's pillar four. So right, right. he then uh, began to uh, do lots and lots of film, extra CAT scans of people with cancer. And he, and he found out that just like a fingerprint, the concentric rings will start as like a nuclei in the nucleus in a very special part of the brain consistently if you have lung cancer or a different spot 100% of the time if you have liver cancer or a different spot 100% of the time if you have kidney cancer. So he, by way of a CAT scan, when these concentric rings appeared in it, could 100% of the time diagnose where your cancer was. Wow. Is this technique still in in, uh, practice? Yes. Yes, it, it still wow. is in practice, but it's underground because yeah, everybody. Of course. Of course. Okay, yeah. so uh, he was eventually thrown in jail and stayed there for three years in Spain, but he's still alive. Oh, he had out of sixty five hundred cases documented with these CAT scans, he cured six thousand cases, and they still threw him in jail. Uh, that's why What's they. The yeah, six, of course, that's why they threw him in jail. Six thousand cases. That's like you coming with a car who doesn't go on fossil fuels. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I don't know uh, what the success rate is of 6,500 divided into 6,000, but I bet you it's over 80%. Mm. 
So he had over an 80% success rate. And these are people who were stage three and four. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So he did something miraculous. And that was because he knew about uh, the pillar four, the emotional electromagnetic system that impacts the water of the body, which is a causal element in the gestation and the genesis of cancer, water. This we is have, hang on. This is interesting because we know from very recent research, like the late Dr. Emoto and stuff, that there is a correlation between water and emotions, sure. and that our emotional attitude can influence uh, water. And we also know, obviously, that water is essential to life. I mean, what are we? Eighty percent water or something? Yeah. So this is interesting. I mean, it's a very short step from that realization. You know, you can sit there and bless your water before you drink it to realize that, hang on, whatever I think and feel will influence the water inside of me. Yes. Which then, of course, influences everything else, including the cells. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's so logical when you think about it. Yep. <laughs> and that gets us into Gilbert Lang. Freeman Cope right. and Raymond Damadian, who discovered this, that cancer, the water inside cancer cells is different than the water inside healthy cells. They're the guys. Ah. And then they figured out after looking at every known cancer therapy, this is back in the late 70s, mm-hmm. that only Gerson diet therapy fixed the water inside cancer cells and that cured the cancer. So that was the key in Gerson's system. That was the key. Hmm. So since since then, since I learned that in the early part of the last 20 years, I've been looking for tools that can make that a shortcut. What devices or techniques in uh, regenerative medicine will cause the water inside the body to go back to its original optimal structure? You mean, you mean uh, for people who have cancer or you mean for everyone? Everybody, because the long living do it. Right. And they never get cancer. How did the long living live to the age of 120 before? Well, let's say, for example, that we have hard data that the long living people from around the world do not start their aging process until they're 90. With this, yeah, I was just going to ask you, is, does this include, and I guess it does, people who always look younger than their age? Yes. Yes. Because I'm one of those. <laughs> I've always, people always think uh, I'm younger than I am. And, and, and now the, I've never connected it to the other ingredient, which is that I never, you know, I, I have to knock on the table every time I say it because <laughs> I don't want to brag or be arrogant here. But not getting diseases and looking younger, I, I think there's something in my water. Well, I always knew that you were a closet Hunzakut. I always knew that, Al. <laughs> yeah, I think you are. And um, okay. the nice thing about it is, is that we can all become like you. We can all become like the Hunzas. It's not a genetic. No, no, no. I, I'm not an ideal at all. But on this uh, particular thing, I, I think I lucked into something. Well, uh, they always say good genes, but does gene enter the equation at all? They would love to think so, but I disagree. Right. They would love. Yeah. They're they're after it like crazy to say, oh yeah, the rest of us can't possibly be uh, able to do right. that because we don't have the right genes. No, that's not true. Mm-hmm. Then they make the argument: what about the telomeres, which limits age? 
And I say, no, because biophotons will elongate the telomere. So give me a break. Oh, I'm going to ask you about biophotons later. But sure. epigenetics, no matter, because epigenetics say it's actually the other way around. It's the consciousness that's influencing the genes. That's right. So so they can't blame the genes as a cause. That's pillar four. You're absolutely right. right. That's so important to this whole technique. Yeah, we're going to go with a fine tooth comb through these pillars because <laughs> I'm hoping people who have cancer or know people who have cancer listening to this, I want to empower them. Uh, for, you know, you have, you have a lot of important information here. But let's return to uh, Gilbert Ling. Yes. So Gilbert Ling is the Tesla of biology for humans, for cell physiology. He, he's beyond being able to describe or compare. He was an he was probably 500 years in many ways ahead because as a biophysicist, he invented the actual instruments to be able to make the MRI uh, show what really happens at the causal level to human cells mm. because MRI will not disturb the living state of a human cell if the human cell is uh, properly positioned. And they started with the sartorius muscles from, uh, from frog. And they worked their way up to human tissue. And what they showed was is that there were three ingredients inside the cell of humans that actually are the causal events, the causal mechanisms that have to be in good shape in order to carry on life and not age or to prevent mm. uh, accelerated aging. And th there are three things. Al, it's the special organization of the water inside the cell. That's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two is the minerals, the healthy, good, healthy minerals in the full spectrum, all 70 in high energy have to be there. Has mm -hmm. to be, and that comes from the soil and from the water. Yeah. And number three, a polypeptide, a protein that comes from mother's breast milk. Hmm. Interesting. Rich in tryptophan and cysteine. And when those are there, that polypeptide is there, it's recycled. When the cell dies, the other cells pick it up as they're growing and they use it, they incorporate it, and it stays in the system for a really long time period. But we can add it in. And it just so happens the reason why the Gilbert Ling caught all that is because of Gerson. Mm. Gerson's diet therapy puts all of those things back into the human being that is uh, deprived of the cellular organization of water, of the minerals, and of this special protein. And Gerson did it through the farmer's cheese that has that protein in there, like mother's breast milk, mm. it did it through the 12 glasses a day. Uh, do, you, do you mean cow cheese or, or what yeah. kind of cheese? Yeah, okay. Mm. Yeah, uh, organic raw cow cheese. Mm. Um, and, of course, the best kind would be type 2A, but I don't know what Gerson used all the time. And then um, uh, you can uh, – most of the people around the world like that are long living have goat cheese or sheep cheese. Or camel cheese or buffalo cheese. Yeah, the, the Caucasians, they, they are crazy uh, for goat cheese and stuff like that. Yeah. Right. And, and uh, kefir. What about kefir? What about ke kefir? Oh. Kefir. Oh, kefir. Uh, I mean like uh, kefir. Yes. Um, yes, that's the Abkhazian. It's not a cheese, but it's a product, uh, you know. It's a buttermilk. From the same. It's a buttermilk, yes. Yeah. Um, mm. and, and that was made famous by the Abkhazians. Yeah. The longest-lived people on the planet. Uh, that's correct. So the, that has that polypeptide. But remember, it's the embryonic foods, and they're, uh, and this is the first time you'll hear this, okay? The second time uh, that 
I'll give new information out. Oh, cool. The longest lived people are, they eat raw embryonic foods from an omnivore approach. Okay. It's not vegetarian only. It can be vegetarian. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it can be from a solid meat diet, but they eat it raw. And the embryonic food factors are destroyed. The, those are the regenerative factors. The, the Corel extract of the embryonic tissue fluid was the first food that caused the chicken heart to live forever. It not only was the water that was highly organized, it, was, it had food in it. It had the special fuel. And that is replete in the diets of all the long-living people. It could be uh, eating liver, like Gerson's diet therapy used liver and carrots mm-hmm. uh, mixed together in a juicer. That's how it, uh, Gerson got it down his patients. It could be the special milk factors from kefir and from yogurt and from colostrum and from the whey. Um, it could be from nuts and seeds that were so heavily used by the Abkhazians. It could have been the apricot pit that the Hunzakuts used, but they also used sprouts. Mm. The Hunzas were famous for their sprouts of the first crop that came up during the springtime. Mm. Um, other people that have no disease were the uh, Inuits, the Eskimo. Eskimo means he who eats it raw. Yeah, and they, they're on a high-fat uh, diet. There were three different kinds. There were the ones that ate almost exclusively a 90% fat diet, but it was raw. Mm. And it was just enough uh, with the protein that they got to eat those raw embryonic food factors. They're protein-based. They're not fat-based. There were the Eskimos that ate only like salmon. It was 100% raw salmon. And they would would throw it in the snow and let it sit for a year before they would eat it and would come up like cheese. Mm. Just like kefir, just like cheese that we make from dairy, same thing. Mm. And that was the enzymes. So the enzymes uh, at the end of the day are like the fourth thing that we, that we stress when one is living a regenerative lifestyle. The first one is oxygen. The second one is water. The third one is embryonic food factors. And the next thing is enzymes. Mm. And then for the people like us that need to recover who aren't as healthy as you are, Al <laughs> – uh, many of us need the bioidentical hormone therapy and uh, until we, we can get to the point where our organs can make it again on their own. Hmm. Um, we're closing up to the first break here, but I want us to run through a few more names I've noticed just for the history. I, I'm dying to get into the understanding part yes, here. Yes, very good. But I've noticed down uh, Mr. Simoncini. Is that his name, maybe? Yes, uh, Dr. Tulio. Tulio. Yeah, and Dr. Kanu and uh, Nordenstrom. Yes, yes. Yeah, I guess we have to touch upon these three fellows too. Yes, uh, let's let's talk about Tulio. So uh, mm-hmm. when we talk about the Petri dish of Alexis Carell and we talk about the study of the long-living people, uh, so far what we've mentioned are the secrets that we can do in our own homes is – Mm. oxygenation complete thorough oxygenation it's the most essential nutrient we only live for three to to seven minutes at the most before we die if we don't have oxygen right the next one is water water we can live for maybe seven days if we're lucky three days usually if we don't have water we die Mm. the next one is ph of the water it's the ph of the water 
I thought that I thought the next one was uh, food. It, it it was until you asked me about Tullio Semicini. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what's this uh, you, you're mentioning here? What's that? So everyone knows number three. Yeah, uh, in chemistry 101 that we're taught in med school, mm-hmm. um, pH, temperature, oxygenation. Um, and of course, hydration, those are the things that govern all chemical reactions. Mm. So if you pay real attention to them and just don't gloss over them, like most physicians would say, oh, I already know that, and they move on. They don't stop to think that in cancer and in all chronic degenerative diseases, there's a hyperacidic state that needs to be removed. And unfortunately, Gerson's diet therapy with all 12 juice, juice drinks each day does not get rid of, of those acids. Mm. That's why it's only 33% effective. If Gerson's diet therapy were to use baking soda therapy, I believe that their results would jump up to 50, 60, 70% almost overnight. But, but isn't this possible to find out? The knowledge is here. Yeah, but it's, yeah, it's a matter of the will. And I've spoken to Harold, uh, Harold the grandson of, uh, of Dr. Gerson, uh, Strauss is his last name. He's He also does a radio show, a wonderful man. And I said to him, I said, Mm -hmm. you guys uh, really need to pay attention to uh, not only the devices that are available today that inspire human regeneration, but also the pH factors. And, and, and he, you know what, he really, he really was excited about what, what I was talking to him about. So disease tissue only occurs in an acid environment. And so Warburg was correct about that, but The way to remove the acid is either through baking soda and or through oxygen therapy because oxygen will create water out of that acid. It neutralizes. Hmm. But when you say oxygen therapy, yeah. what, what does that uh, is it is not breathing, is it? Yeah, yeah. It, it can be ozone therapy. It can be injected hydrogen peroxide therapy or it could be exercising with oxygen therapy called EWOT. All of those... Because you, you know the yogis of uh, India, yep. they often live a long time and they can even go into artificial death. And pranayama, you know, uh, they have a whole science of breath. Yeah. And what breath can lead to. Yeah, the Institute of Yogic Sciences uh, has demonstrated these amazing people being able to stay in a hermetically sealed chamber for six hours after the canary dies. Right. Wow. They go into... And, and you, have, you have different guys. You have one who's been... Uh, you've probably seen news about that because it's been all over the world. Uh, uh-huh. This guy who... Uh, I think it was the Indian military who studied him in a lab. Actually, in a lab. Yeah, he was game. And he doesn't eat... Right. And 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 I don't uh, he hardly drinks. He just sits there. And he's been going like he, he's breaking your claim here about, you know, how long we can go without this and that. <laughs> yeah. But he's a he's a weird case. But uh, I think people have stumbled into something here, you know? Well, uh, that yeah. If you study the longest lived cultures, uh there's 30 of them. There's thousands and thousands of them and If you use them as your reference point for your science, you're a lot farther ahead than trying to take one breatharian who doesn't eat and doesn't drink and try to figure out how to utilize that for helping the entire 
degenerate civilization. Oh, I, I've heard that Breatharians have been debunked, by the way. Yeah, but, uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if we get into the long-living people, I think we can maintain that because they are consistently a group of people that don't start their aging process until they're 90, whereas the rest of us start when we're 40. Right, right, right. So that's our that's our reference point. But you you were talking about um, how long we could go without this and that, and I interrupted you. Were, were you done with that reasoning? Yeah. So if you look at pH, um, now you know we talked about oxygen, and oxygen makes water, and that's neutral pH. Mm. Mm. We talked about water, and that needs to be highly structured and organized. It's not just regular water. And the Gerson diet therapy brings back that structure to it. So do bioenergetic devices like uh, the the electrotherapy of Tesla and of diarsivinol and uh, the multi-wave oscillator and uh, the violet ray. They all bring structure back to the water. And you can measure that by the surface tension of water. Mm. It'll drop it. And that makes it. Uh, more wet, more organized. And that's the basis of Emoto's uh, uh, work where he then added to that different humans meditating or praying or getting angry around certain water samples and then photographing their snowflakes that are a result of it and seeing the beautiful snowflakes that come out of throwing love at the water versus the horrible snowflakes that come out of throwing temper tantrums around a, a, a beaker of of water and um yeah and, and i have to inject here that geometry which basically is a number in space <laughs> just like uh, music is number in time uh, geometry is in everything is the essence of of creation basically nice yeah. so uh, you know to to photograph or to notice down the geometry of for instance water is basically mapping the structure of it yeah and uh, so uh, the, the when he shows that there's a correlation between the emotion, which emotion, right, uh, movement, energy, <laughs> and how water will, because water is so receptive, it's the most receptive element we have. So uh, it just makes so much sense to me. Yes. When these things are are unveiled and discovered. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that. The cells of the human body are 70% water, mm. and they record everything we think, say, and do. They record it. NSA, are you listening? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so in that perspective, they actually are collectively our mind. Mm. Our mind, not our brain, but our mind, that everything we think, say, and do is recorded into the water of the cells of the body. And so these techniques that cause us to uh, have catharsis from emotional shock and traumas that are emotional to release them, then that water starts sending proper signals through it, through epigenetics, as you spoke of. So the genes and the proteins can start doing what they're supposed to do. Hmm. And a person recovers from their disease. That's what Hammer di did with his therapy of desensitizing the emotional shock. He became an expert at that. Mm. Yep. What about uh, Canoe and Nordenstrom? Well, Nordenstrom, we'll get to Canal in a second. Canal was uh, one of the five students of, uh, Han, of uh, Paul Nihans, who was the life cell therapy expert. But let's, he was the true 
father of regeneration. Um, I would say the founder, though, was Alexis Carell, uh, the founder. Okay. So he's in, in Carell's tradition. Yeah, okay. yeah. Mm. I, but in 1930 was the first uh, time that Hans, uh, Paul Nihans uh, made an, a thyroid extract to cure a woman who had just had a thyroid ect- or a, sorry, a, a parathyroid extract to cure her of uh, going into shock from removing the parathyroid gland. So that was 1930. So Carell came before that 19, in 1912. But he didn't put it together for human beings. It was uh, Paul Nihans who did, starting in 1930. Mm. But just for a moment, so um, we can digress to him because that's really where we can bring forward the principles of integrative regenerative medicine that I think uh, enables the body the best way to recover from anything that's wrong with itself. So we'll get into that in just a second. Okay. But uh, Nordenstrom, beyond Nordenstrom, um, he was the guy that discovered needle biopsy for cancer detection in 1957. He's a Swede, and um, when... um, his laurels and his credentials were as long as any of us have arms and legs. They were extensive. Mm. And so the Swedes came to him and they said, look, you know, we can't give you the Nobel Prize for discovering that needle biopsy technique because you're too smart. You're too above that. We want you to chair the Nobel Prize Committee in Medicine. Oh, so he was one of those guys uh, who who okay, I see. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So he gave Back in the day. He was right. the the head the head to that uh, whole uh, process for awarding the Nobel prizes in medicine for 10 years. So so that's why they gave it to good guys <laughs> back then. Yeah, 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 right. And and then he retired and he retired to his home where he had a basement set up to treat cancer patients that had less than three weeks to live. Hmm. And he didn't let anybody know. Smart guy. Yeah. And so for 10 years, he never published a thing. He never told anybody what he was doing. He cured half of the patients that came to see him. Wow. And, and his approach was? Okay. So his approach was to take a platin, platinum needle. A platinum needle is a transition metal like silver. Mm-hmm. And silver relates to Becker's work, and he showed that silver was highly regenerative. But platinum, he stuck the needle directly into the center of a tumor. Wow. And then he learned how to reverse the polarity of the tumor, and it melted the tumor. Mm. And he had all kinds of diagrams. He proved what the, what the charge was, the positive uh, on the inside and the negative on the outside of a tumor, and it should have been the other way around. He proved that that the electromagnetic circumstances of a tumor could be short-circuited hmm. and that tumor would instantly melt. And so, again, just like Rife, anybody who was 50 and over, they died. But anybody who was 40 and younger, for the most part, would live. Hmm. And he collected he amassed a phenomenal amount of detailed study that's nearly impossible to refute and he finally published the book and then he was gone he was done done you mean he passed away no 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 he just went into complete reclusion you know he went into seclusion because of the uh, challenges he he was met with yeah oh yeah i mean that was it man he knew it was going to happen he Mm. knew that all hell was going to break loose and he didn't care because he knows the politics of medicine. Yeah, that he, he knew how these things works, but also 
he had had a long life. He had achieved what he could. It's like if it's like if you're a full professor, right? That's when you can start the real research because they can't, yes. unless you're a criminal, they can't <laughs> yeah. smack you down. So I, I like that. Yeah, I tell you, yeah, 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 yeah. He was cool. He knew what he was doing. So yeah. good guy. Now going back to uh, so how to do this inside the human body? That's the question. So if you have the right reference points, if you understand Corel from the causal point of view, if you Got a hold of McGarrison's work with the Hunzas, where he studied them. He lived with them for 30 years, where he did animal experiments with their food. And he understood it was from the water and the soil on up. It wasn't, it wasn't the diet. And he said this, but no one paid, paid him any attention. Everyone tried to duplicate the diet of the Hunzas, and it doesn't work. Mm. You have to grow it in the same environmental standards. That's the key because of the electromagnetic principle. And then with the Petri dish studies, the tissue, the animal studies, uh, uh, including uh, Pottinger's work and and McGarrison's work, and then Hans Kugler's work with animals and rats. And then finally with humans, with all of the anthropologists who studied truly properly the longest-lived cultures, you now for the first time have the actual scientific reference points to look at causal medicine. If you don't have use those as your standards, then you're going to be using inferior standards and you're going to miss the boat and think that you're doing a lot of great things. And this is what I have to I have to stop all the I teach physicians all the time and and I get together with some great physicians. These are guys that are accomplished. And these are women that are wonderful and smart and have come up with tricks of the trade that are fantastic. And I get right in their face. And I say to them in a really polite way to shut up, in a really nice way, mm-hmm. I say, shut up. You don't know anything at all compared to the long-lived people because all of your patients, if you're lucky, will die when they're 80. And yet the longest-lived people don't pass away until they're 110, 115, and in some cases, 120. Mm. When you start getting your people to consistently live to 100 – or to stop the biomarkers of aging dead in its tracks until they're 90, then we can talk about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But see, right now, you're here to learn about how you can live to the age of a tree. And then then you'll be able to get your patients to do the same thing. Physician, heal thyself. (laughs) And then you'll be able to heal the sick. That's the other half of the Greek idiom. In Luke, uh, Christ points that out. In, uh, in one of his verses, but he leaves out half of the saying, which is, physician, heal thyself first, and then you'll be able to heal the sick. So mm. all of our seminars that we'll talk about at the end, we have all of our physicians treating themselves twice a day, every single day that they're at our seminars with our regenerative techniques. Great. So they feel it. They go, yeah. whoa, I, I haven't felt this good since 25 years ago. Yeah, but I mean, it makes perfect sense. There shouldn't be one therapy in the world where the therapeut hasn't been through it himself or herself. So, yeah. There you go. Even in this area, yeah. And then I say to them, now bring your skill set forward because I'm sure it's wonderful and you'll go much further than I have with it. I'm not the smartest guy around. You guys are. You women are. You've got the the pedigrees from Harvard. You've got uh, I I'm working right now with a Chinese couple that are uh, – MD PhDs with three of the largest labs in the in the country of China just dedicated to their um, experimentations dealing with genomics. They're so bright. 
And I had put them both onto the machines. And I said, drink this, drink this green drink, eat these raw sprouted delicious diets, hummus made with raw uh, chickpeas that have been sprouted, grown properly in, in zeta potential water, alkaline water, drink the water, and now get to the oxygen therapy, get some of these re- uh, regenerative foods that um, the, uh, over, over the next 72 hours. And they come out with rosy cheeks, bright eyes, and a smile on their face. And they go, wow. Mm-hmm. And then their MD-PhD starts really turning around and they can start applying, hey, listen, this is really cool. We can, if we do this with patients, we'll be able to see the genomics change. We can do those experiments. And I said, thank you. Let's do it. Mm. Yeah, it is so important to work from the inside of the system to get people who are in the system to adopt these things. Yeah. I guess uh, many of the people we've touched upon, I guess we, I think you mentioned 19 or 20 people. Most of them were in the system, weren't they? Mainstream yeah. physician and healers. It, it wasn't like, uh, you know, crazy quacks. Uh, not that I <laughs> think that exists, but you know what I mean. They were actually, like you said, Nordenstrom and several of these. But it's like they are in the system, but when they discover this or when they come out with this, that's when they get crushed and purged from the system. Isn't that so? Yeah, and that's always been true uh, throughout the history of medicine. Yeah. Yeah, that's been true. Yep. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we, uh, I have a couple of questions for that too. But I, I think this is where we should take a short break. Okay. And uh, when we come back, we'll go more into the essence of these things and examine this regenerative medicine that you've been talking about. Excellent. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Thanks. 